Happy Holidays from the DSR Network. We are deeply appreciative of our members and the year that we've had. To celebrate the holiday season, we are offering a 50% discount on either your first month or first year of membership. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the members-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of December, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month or for the first year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRHOLIDAY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRHOLIDAY. Thank you very much for your support. Hi, this is DSR Network producer Riley Fessler. As focus turns back to Ukraine as the budget debate continues, this week's episode from the silo is a foreign office covering Ukraine's handling of Western weapons. We hope you enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, as well as Senior Editor at New Lines Magazine. Uh, this week, I'm joined by uh, Mick Ryan. He's a former uh, retired Major General in the Australian Army, as well as an adjunct fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. If you haven't been following him, uh, like a lot of the guests I have on this show, he's been an absolutely indispensable voice uh, and analyst on the war in Ukraine, must read Twitter threads at least once or twice a week, and has been one of the few observers who I think has been completely on song from the very beginning about the uh, the pacing of the war and what the deficiencies are, particularly on the Russian side, but also on the Ukrainian side. And it's been a while trying to get him on the show because he's uh, he's in Australia, I'm in New York, and you can imagine the time differences and scheduling conflicts. But Mick, it's great to have you on. And I mean, it's actually perfect timing because we've both been discussing and we both recently published some work on the deployment of HIMARS in the Ukrainian war. These are the uh, mobile, multiple launch rocket systems the U.S. has given them. The U.K. has their own variety, which is even more powerful version. And I I believe the Germans are about to send two or three systems as well to Ukraine. Um, Why don't we start there and then perhaps kind of zoom out? So, you know, Ukrainian military officials I've talked to describe HIMARS as really a game-changing weapon system. We've seen evidence, uh, certainly on social media, videos of ammunition depots, command centers just going up in I mean, mushroom cloud-sized explosions, even in parts of Ukraine that have been long held by Russian occupiers going back to the 2014-2015 era. Give us a sense, your perspective on what these weapons can and cannot achieve for the Ukrainians in, in the coming weeks and months. Well, Michael, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, yeah, this is this is a really powerful weapons system, as we've seen. I mean, it, it's kind of ironic. It was the Russians who came up with the idea of these multi-launch rocket systems. They used them extensively in the later years of the Second World War, including their fight through to Berlin. Cold War period saw the US develop the uh, tracked MLRS system, which was used extensively in the Gulf War, as used by its allies, including Germany and the United Kingdom, as you pointed out. And then the Army and the US Marines developed this lighter version that was more easily transportable over strategic distances and then more easily uh, redeployed tactically, which has Uh, either six rockets or the single ATACMS, which is a much longer range rocket with a range of 300 kilometres. So that's the system. Its utility 
in warfare and particularly for the Ukrainians is that firstly, the rockets are very accurate. These are not an area weapon. These are very precise systems that range out to around 80 kilometres, which is certainly much longer than most of the Russian artillery that is in theatre. So it gives the Ukrainians a reach advantage. Mm -hmm. But also they're redeployable very quickly. The detection to destruction time in Ukraine because of the use of surveillance drones is very short, just a few minutes. Indeed, it's too short for towed artillery now, in my belief, really Artillery henceforth has to be highly mobile, either tracked or wheeled uh, like these high-mass systems are. The Defence Minister, Alexei Reznikov, I think he, he gave a talk at the Atlantic Council just a few days ago saying, you know, these things are great. We need 50 of them to deter Russia and 100 of them to wage successful counteroffensives. I did the math uh, for this story published at Yahoo today. They've got about 25 either in theater or in route. So, you know, half the, the number that Mr. Reznikov says they need to, to kind of hold the line and only a quarter of the number they need to perhaps retake uh, Kherson. I mean, what are the, you know, I know that they, these have enormous scoot and shoot capabilities because you can fire off a whole salvo of rockets and then you're out of the firing zone by the time the Russians even know what's happened, much less can wage any kind of counter battery. Uh, and we, we're seeing them take out and really disrupt Russian supply lines. But you, you wrote a very good piece yourself. I've seen it now in two different outlets, I believe, about how what the HIMARS have done effectively for the Ukrainians within only a few weeks of deployment or, or being operational is they've allowed the Ukrainians to return to their kind of war of, of corrosion, as you put it, which has, has served them enormously well, particularly in for the Battle of Kiev. G- give us a little sense of what you mean by a war of corrosion. The worst thing you want to do as a soldier is fight how the enemy wants you to yeah. fight. Um, the Russian way of war, their military culture is about crushing attrition, almost human waves. I mean, that's pretty much how the Russians have always fought, Mm. you know, massive destruction of cities and and people. The Ukrainians aren't inclined to fight like that. They can't afford to fight like that. So since the beginning of this war, they've, you know, um, fought the Russian strategy as well as fighting the Russians, and that is they've refused to fight how the Russians want them to fight. They've used indirect tactics, as Liddell Hart might describe them, but they've used conventional forces uh, asymmetrically to attack the Russians where they're weakest. And the Russians are weak in their logistics, in their supply lines, and really poor rear area security. They've been very weak Mm -hmm. in their communication security and loose talk on semi-secure radio systems by senior officers, which has then allowed the Ukrainians to target uh, headquarters, which uh, impacts on coordination, Mm -hmm. command and control. Um, They fought very successfully like this all the way up to the Donbass. You know, it essentially forced a Russian retreat from the Battle of Kiev. It forced a retreat uh, around Kharkiv. But they were drawn into this attritional fight in the Donbass, um, largely because of geography. It was a was a pocket that's very difficult when you're in there to to fight any other way, but face to face. Mm. You know, now that they've kind of realigned their front line, um, they're focusing on offensives in the south where the Ukrainians have advantages in numbers, air power and geography. They understand the ground pretty well. 
the HIMARS have allowed them to get back to attacking the Russians and corrode them physically and, importantly, psychologically. You, well, you've seen a, just a host of comments on pro-Russian military telegram channels and social media. I mean, really describing the impact these things have had on morale, on their ability to kind of resupply their own artillery systems, which, as you noted, far outnumber the Ukrainian systems. But are they really going to, you know, for instance, uh, to take Defense Minister Reznikov at his own word, are they really going to change the the nature of of waging a counteroffensive in the South? I mean, I I recently was uh, in Estonia and I queried their uh, MOD and Intel people who seem to be of a mind that there will be a major counteroffensive launched before the end of the summer. Already, we're beginning to see some kind of probing attacks. There has been a succession of sorties on the Antonovsky Bridge in Kherson, which I think is essentially the only way for Russia's logistics to, to move across the east and west bank of the Dnieper River, right? Um, Russian military commentators have said, we should have blown this bridge up before. Now the Ukrainians are going to do it and trap us there. And, you know, they'll, they'll be able to take the left bank, that kind of thing. I know it's it's it can be a bit, you know, uh, a fool's errand to make predictions in war. But do you think that Ukraine, A, has the manpower and now B, has the kit that they can actually start to recapture terrain in this war? If, if the front line, as Commander in Chief uh, Zaluzhny said in Donbass, has now begun to, quote, stabilize. I think there's a range of considerations here. This, um, this is my next piece, actually, I'm writing. I mean, the, the imperatives uh, for the Russia, for the uh, Ukrainians to take the South are pretty strong. I mean, I think it's the more strategic yeah. theatre for the Ukrainians for a couple of reasons. Firstly, uh, it is from the South uh, that not only generate agricultural and manufacturing goods for export, it's where most of the exports come out of. Their ports, uh, about 60% of their foreign revenue comes through their ports. They need these ports back. They need uh, to take back the South. But secondly, it's the area where the Russians seem to be most keen to undertake these referendums yeah. and impose their political system and their financial systems uh, on the Ukrainian people. So, you know, uh, the president uh, has given direction to take back the South. He understands well that it's both uh, politically and strategically vital for his country to own it. So I don't doubt there will be a Ukrainian offensive. Mm -hmm. um, what are the considerations that the Ukrainians have in this offensive? Well, firstly, they'll be undertaking a whole range of intelligence activities and shaping activities to trick Russian uh, logistics and artillery before they launch anything. They will want to deceive the Russians about where their main effort's going to be. But in the lead-up to it, they're probably going to have to do a fair bit of training of their soldiers, particularly those, you know, with the company, battalion, brigade and above levels, because they've lost a lot of good leaders in this yeah. world in offensive operations. Uh, offensive operations are very difficult defense to defensive ones. They take a lot more collective training. So they're going to have to do a lot of training, rehearsals and planning to pull this off. Um, finally, they're going to need more equipment from the West. I mean, things like infantry fighting vehicles, armoured personnel carriers and more standardised artillery rather than the hodgepodge they've got will be really vital to any yeah. offensive. So can they do it? Absolutely. But there are a few considerations that I'm sure the high command have been looking at over the last few months to pull this off. You mentioned, um, you know, part and parcel with any good offensive is uh, intelligence. 
And we've seen now, I mean, just today, uh, it was confirmed that uh, President Zelensky has stripped a series of Ukrainian oligarchs and rather controversial figures of their citizenship, including Igor Kolomoisky, who's arguably one of the reasons Zelensky is president. Uh, he financed the television channel that made Zelensky a star. But uh, I think he's been indicted by the United States. He's seen as a very dodgy figure. But leaving all that to one side, we've also seen the sacking of the SBU director, the top intelligence chief. Uh, a childhood friend of Zelensky. So there was a lot of personal, you know, sort of complications in that decision, I'm sure. And he's campaign manager for the presidency, as well as also the prosecutor general, who was kind of meant to be leading the, the charge to bring allegations or indictments of, for war crimes to the International Criminal Court, et cetera, et cetera. Largely, what we're seeing is a kind of house cleaning, uh, which I don't think is coincidentally taking place as we're in this kind of interregnum before the next big phase of the war. And one of the things that I'd heard a lot, and we've seen evidence for, frankly, at the start of the campaign, or the start of the Russian invasion, I should say, in February 24, Kherson was the first major population center to fall because, well, geographically, obviously, it's north of Crimea, so the Russians already had plenty of resources there to take it. But also, there were quite a number of fifth columnists, including within the intelligence and military apparatus that, you know, essentially allowed the Russians in or, you know, kind of change flags, and some of them even ran off back to Russia. Do you reckon that um, some of these kinds of, you know, internal reshufflings of personnel at very high levels is, you know, in preparation or anticipation for this major offensive? And also, I mean, one of the things we're, we're beginning to see now is the United States in particular, but also allied NATO countries are sending the kind of weapons platforms Ukraine has been asking for for a long time. But these are NATO standardized weapons platforms, whether artillery, uh, infantry fighting, the, all, all of the things that you've talked about. And now we're having this conversation about whether they're going to be trained up on F-16s. Is the U.S. essentially going to build a new air force, a post-Soviet air force for Ukraine? I can well imagine the U.S. government saying, right, you know, we, we turned a blind eye to all of the kind of disarray and notorious corruption within your ranks at both the civilian government level and the military and security level. Now is the time, though, we are essentially giving you some of the privileges and benefits of NATO membership without actual membership. You really have to have your house in order. Do you see this as all kind of taking place in a, at a very, shall we say, suggestive time in the in the campaign? Yeah, I mean, these are the kind of conversations you don't see referred to in the statements right. of the meetings between Secretary Austin and the Ukrainian government. Um, I've no doubt that, you know, there will be people uh, working for the Ukrainian government that have close ties with the Russians. I mean, geographically, they're neighbours. Um, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. It's inevitable that there are ties there back that, you know, that go way, way back. So we shouldn't be surprised there are people who are acting as agents of Russians, yeah. uh, Russia within the Ukrainian government. The fact that they're doing it, I think, is a positive sign. I think, you know, there probably has been those conversations behind closed doors about cleaning house of some of the less uh, effective or desirable elements. But I think it also allows President Zelensky to say, hey, we're a democracy, we're being transparent about holding people accountable for the performance of those underneath mm -hmm. them. Uh, that's a pretty good yeah. message. You know, we'd probably like to see that in all our countries, to be quite frank. So, you know, the timing, yes, we are at a lower tempo period. I would not have called what's happened an operational pause, but it's certainly a lower tempo period uh, that's occurred over the last couple of weeks. 
clearly the next four months is going to be decisive for the Russians and the Ukrainians, particularly the Ukrainians who need to show significant progress for all the support they've received from the West because they're going to be under pressure during the northern winter to sustain that support. So all these things, I believe, have aligned for President Zelensky to make these decisions, even though a couple of them would have been personally difficult for him. And let's not forget, every Western nation has had spy scandals over the last 30 years. It's just part and parcel of the intelligence. Uh, Today I saw uh, at the Aspen Security Forum here in the US, uh, well, you've had CIA Director Bill Burns and also MI6 Chief uh, Richard Moore both come out, essentially sprinkling some cold water on the idea that Vladimir Putin is is not long for this world, that he might be terminally ill or seriously impaired in some way. But Chief uh, Richard Moore came out with an even more, I think, interesting and provocative comment, which is he believes, I think that the Russians, the the quote was the the Russian army is going to run out of steam within the next few weeks. Now, we hear all the time, you know, set your watch, you know, there's going to be a complete collapse in the ranks and the Russians are going to run out of precision guided munitions. They're going to run out of tanks. They're going to run out of ammunition now, thanks to the HIMARS and all of that. But, you know, when a top Intel chief of a not just any country, but particularly the UK, uh, which certainly has the closest military and diplomatic and intelligence sharing relationship with the United States, comes out and says this. You sort of want to pay attention. I mean, have you noticed anything different? I mean, I, yeah, we, we see anecdotal bits of evidence about really flagging morale on the Russian side and over reliance now not just on mercenary groups or PMCs like Wagner, but even lower order recruitment levels. Like they used to find ex-cons and, you know, sort of former violent criminals. Now they're literally emptying jail cells to, you know, send people off to the front. But all that to one side, I mean, the the collapse of Russia, whether it's the military or the economy or the intelligence sector or even, you know, the president himself is is usually greatly exaggerated and, and a lot of premature uh, analysis is given. But I'm curious from your military expertise, are you seeing a kind of dramatic shift in Russian capability? I'll go back to the very first part of your question uh, just quickly about Putin. I agree. I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon. And the Ukrainians can't, and I'm pretty sure they don't base their theory of victory in this war on Putin shuffling off this mortal coil. I mean, in every war we see this, right? If only Hitler was dead, we'd beat the Nazis. If only Tojo was dead, we'd beat the Japanese. If only Ho Chi Minh was dead, we'd beat them. I mean, it's just a it's a fantasy and a myth to believe in that. And it's not a very good way of doing strategic or military planning. So yeah, we should just assume Putin's going to be there for some time to come because he's spent 20 mm-hmm. years kind of reinforcing his position with multiple layers of security. The Russians running out of steam. Um, You know, I'm pretty conservative when it comes to these kind of things because, you know, my expertise is in the phenomenon of war and, you know, be very careful predicting the end of a military organisation, particularly when, you know, Putin still has a large majority of Russians who support him with what's Mm -hmm. going on here. Um, and there are manpower problems, but they have been able to largely fill their latest conscription draft. Um, that won't be available for a couple of months, but there's no reason why I couldn't use some of that in Ukraine. But on the other side of that, clearly the Russians have struggled to make progress already for Luhansk. I mean, that cost them a lot of soldiers and a lot of equipment, and they have not been making 
great progress over the last couple of weeks across terrain where they should have been making faster progress. So, you know, the Russians are struggling. Does that mean they're going to culminate any time in the next few weeks? I don't think so. I mean, the Russians have not demonstrated any capacity so far to step back and say, you know what, we think that's enough. They've only demonstrated the capacity of saying, we're going to take Ukraine one way or the other. I think that will remain there objective, not just the Donbass. I think they have larger objectives and we should assume that they have the capacity and the will to do that and resource Ukraine. I mean, you know, if you were sort of in the driver's seat of security assistance from the very start of the war, one of the things I've noted, I mean, you, you hear a lot of naysaying, you go to Kiev, why didn't you give us X, Y, and Z weapon system when we could have really used it? And in fact, you know, one of the negative things about the arrival of HIMARS are people who were at Sverdonetsk and Lisa Chan said, ah, oh, if only we'd had these, we could have held the line there as well. But I know that security assistance is a very fraught and difficult thing. You're dealing with absorption rates of training militaries on how to use weapon systems. And then frankly, you know, it's not like we just, here's a HIMAR, here's one vehicle, you know, with a set of wheels and modular units, you know, have at it, boys. I mean, there's all this ancillary stuff that comes along with resupplying the rockets and doing maintenance and repairs and and all the rest of it. It does strike me, though, I mean, within the space of a month, as I, as I said earlier, they've got 25 essentially similar or equivalent multiple launch rocket systems. And that's about a quarter of what they say they need to kind of press the fight home. That's pretty remarkable in any conflict, right? I mean, four weeks and they went from zero to 25. In another four, they could well have over 100, given their what they've sh- demonstrated is a high proficiency at absorption. Do you think that that sort of the kind of pessimistic and critical attitudes that, well, a lot of us in the press and certainly a lot of you know civil society actors, especially online, have trafficked in about the West's aid or lack thereof for Ukraine, that it's been misguided, it's been a bit unfair? Yeah, I think... You know, the HIMARS is a great case study. My own army identified the need for HIMARS nearly a decade ago. We still don't have it. You know, the Ukrainians got it in weeks. I mean, they have a different mindset to the vast majority of analysts and commentators in the West who were stuck in, uh, you know, a 1990s managerial mindset where everything has to go through multiple committees and processes and takes years to procure. Then the introduction into service has a whole range of training and logistic liabilities, which also take months or or years. The reality is the Ukrainians, while they've been fighting this war, have also been totally resetting their equipment set and their logistic approach from the old Soviet approach, the old Warsaw processes and equipment, to standard NATO approaches. You know, that is really hard. It's hard in peacetime. It's really difficult in wartime, but somehow, and primarily because they just have to, the Ukrainians are slowly but surely pulling it off. My view is, just give them the stuff, they'll find a way to use it. The problem is, we don't have massive stocks of some things. Since 1991, defence industry has contracted, the production runs are smaller, war stocks have been significantly reduced. So it's not always just the capacity of the Ukrainians to absorb stuff. It's that many countries just physically don't possess the large stockpiles of material to give them. I mean, if there has ever been a driver to reinvigorate Western defence industry to be able to produce stuff at scale, not just to be able to fight, but to be able to deter countries in the future from 
these kind of adventures, this has got to be. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it certainly seems that NATO has rediscovered first principles in terms of the kind of warfare it is fighting now, either, you know, indirectly through Ukraine or that will be fighting in the future, whether it's a, a resurgent Russia or trying to fend off an attack by another conventional state actor. I mean, there seems to have been a fundamental shift from this idea that the 21st century was going to be defined by guerrilla or insurgencies or terrorist organizations and that the age of conventional state on state warfare, much less tank warfare in the heart of Europe had come to an end. I mean, are you noticing this too in the, I mean, clearly you still maintain contacts and ties to official government and military institutions. There seems to have been a, a massive 180 here, right? A recognition that, as you said, that the sort of the 1990s period was a mistake. It, now it's time to, you know, look to the future. And, and Ukraine, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a country that NATO powers and, you know, militaries are going to be visiting for generations just to study, I mean, at the very granular level, how this war was fought and perhaps even will be won by the Ukrainians at some point. Yeah, I know. I think certainly the 180 is in progress. I don't think it's a complete 180 right. yet. I think there's a lot of people engaging in wishful thinking still. I think there's a couple of major countries in Europe that haven't done the 180 they really should be doing, to be quite frank. I mean, this is why I wrote my book that I published just before the war, because I was concerned, particularly this decline of war theory uh, from academics who I think should know uh -huh. better, who don't understand human history, who don't understand human nature. Humans are competitive animals. We compete in everything whether it's the Olympics, whether it's the stock market, whether it's a housing market, we're competitive. And sometimes that competitive nature leads to people who want to take things by force. That hasn't changed over 5,000 years of reported military history, and it's not going to change in the short yeah. term. So uh, this idea that we were entering a more peaceful era was always fraught with danger. Uh, it's arrogant to think we can predict with perfect clarity the kinds of struggles competitions or conflicts we'll face in the future. And we need to temper that arrogance with uh, hedging our bets with a range of different forces that we may not have used in the last 20 years. And to be quite frank, special forces are not going to be a large part of the solution in future war. You know, they played a role in the last 20 years in two wars that we didn't win. I, I think what we're seeing now is a return to the meat and potatoes of warfare because that's what we know works. Um, and frankly, at the end of the day, wars are political, which means they're human, which means you have to win them on the ground with people. Well, given the uh, your longitude in the world right now, um, another comment that that struck me as as kind of arresting by uh, by CIA director uh, Bill Burns was China is very uh, carefully studying this war in Ukraine. And it has affected I think his his formulation was not if but when they mount some kind of campaign to try and invade Taiwan. Clearly, Australia, one of your national security concerns is, is a, a rising China. Is there a sort of sense as well in the Australian military analytic community that, you know, Taiwan could be the next sort of conventional conflict to erupt, perhaps in the next few years, if not sooner? I think those comments by the director are on the money. This has never been an if. This has always been when. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party did their first study of an invasion of Taiwan in 1949. Um, the problem has never been will. 
it's always been means. I mean, that study, uh, like a US military study in the mid-40s, found that you need about half a million soldiers to come ashore to do that. That's a pretty difficult mathematical problem when you've got 180 kilometres of sea to cross. If we have a look at the statements of Xi and senior military leaders, they are telling us what they're going to do. I mean, we don't need to divine this with animal entrails or or use intelligence. They're very clear with us what they're going to do here. They are very clear that they don't want us to interfere, that Taiwan is an integral part of China and they will take it back by force if needs be. So we shouldn't assume that it won't happen. We have to assume that it will, and we must prepare primarily to deter such an eventuality, I hope, because it would be an extraordinarily, way worse than what we're seeing in Ukraine. I mean, just an order of magnitude. Well, I mean, is it then fair logically to conclude that should Ukraine collapse, should Russia succeed in this war, that is only going to add ballast or, you know, wind to the sails of the Chinese to say, okay, well, the West, with with all the billions they poured in and with all the the NATO artillery and kit, they still couldn't save one of their partners. So Taiwan is next. Oh, I, th- I think there's validity in that argument. I mean, Xi in particular has his narrative about the decline of the mm-hmm. West. Um, he and Xi cannot wait for Western uh, European countries to backslide from supporting Ukraine. That will only support their narrative. Um, so this isn't an if proposition, it's a when. And I mean, I've just delivered my next book manuscript and it's entirely about a war over Taiwan because I, I think it's a near certainty if we don't do everything we can in the short term, as in the next few months and year or two, to deter. I mean, you you mentioned that uh, both Putin and Xi are are banking on war fatigue and Western distractedness. And I mean, that's the other war of attrition, right? Can Western resolve? And I wouldn't even call it consensus, but insofar as there is a block that has yet to crumble with all the waywardness of various countries and their leadership from France to Germany and so on. I've been impressed by the fact that this is kind of endured as long as it has going into month five. But I'm also very wary and and even pessimistic, frankly. You know, the nice thing about being an authoritarian dictatorship is you don't really have to answer to your people and there's no transition of power. We have midterm elections coming up in the United States and not very far from now. We have a presidential contest coming up where the incumbent is doing worse than I think any president in modern history in terms of his polling. We could well see a case where we wake up in 2024, the war in Ukraine is still raging, but there's a new occupant of the White House who says, you know what, that's it. They're on their own. We've done enough. We've got big problems at home to take care of. And, you know, there's a a growing sentiment in the American electorate and other electorates around Europe that, okay, you know, we made our point with Ukraine. Kiev is safe for now. Let's just cut a deal. How does how does the West or how do democracies sort of indemnify themselves to this idea that if you're fighting a dictatorship or you're fighting a coalition or, or axis of dictatorships that just essentially they play the long clock? How do you counterman that? I mean, clearly, you know, the media plays a role. But as speaking as a journalist, I can just tell you there is not the appetite that there was for covering Ukraine. I mean, I'm focused on it exclusively because that's sort of my my bailiwick now. I'm writing a book on the GRU and that has a lot to bear on, on this conflict as well. But yeah, I mean, what does a democracy do and, and how does it kind of bolster the argument that, look, you may not be interested in these faraway conflicts, but they're going to be interested in you. And eventually, if they go the wrong way, it's going to lead to a proliferation of more conflicts down the line. Yeah, I mean, this is all about purpose and patience for democracies, right? It's about governments that can explain to their citizens why supporting Ukraine over over the long term 
is vital, not just uh, a discretionary thing, but a vital national interest because, you know, if one's not worth defending, are any of them worth right. defending? You know, it's they, all democracies matter or none of them matter, to paraphrase a Harry Bosch saying. And so the purpose matters and then that strategic patience is really important. I mean, democracies really worry about two timeframes. They worry about 24-7 news cycles, particularly politicians, and they worry about three to four-year electoral cycles. The reality is we now exist in an era where they may be important, but we also have to deal in microseconds because of, you know, influence operations, hypersonic weapons, but also in decades because we are in a long-term strategic competition with Russia, Iran, North Korea and China. They may not be a bloc, but we might as well consider them one. And frankly, at the other end of this, you know, we need to decide if the great uh, purpose of democracies in the 21st century is actually to roll back uh, authoritarian regimes. I mean, they are, in some respects, an existential threat to many democratic countries around the world. And there is a growing, I mean, one of the sort of philosophical themes of this show, just by nature of the subject matter I deal in, which is conflict, national security, intelligence operations. One of the challenges, and I'm not saying that we haven't faced it before, but in the age of, as you say, kind of instantaneous information, digital media, it's become much more difficult and formidable a challenge, is that within our own democratic societies, there is a Jones for authoritarianism. There is a kind of growing belief, both on the left and the right, the far ends of those of the spectrum, that is, that actually, you know, the way Putin does business or Bolsonaro or Viktor Orban, who technically inhabits a democracy, even though things have been going in the re reverse direction. That's how we should do it here, right? We should have more of a nationalistic bent. We shouldn't think internationally. We shouldn't think, as you, you put it, in terms of global strategic competition, but get our own house in order, seal off the borders, and then, I guess, hope for the best or, or try to revivify our own cultures and our own societies. This must be also, I mean, fundamentally, this is, um, this transcends, you know, culture debates. This becomes a national security issue, right? Um, because from that, we derive essentially what we we're talking about before. You know, I mean, with respect to Ukraine, having fifth columnists and people who are working for hostile foreign regimes, the same thing happens at home. And the argument for it becomes even more compelling. I mean, do you see that the West, and I know that's a very loose grab bag term, but it's the only one I, I can think of. Do you see that it's in a fundamental internal crisis in that regard? You know, this idea that the 1989 kind of teleology that things are marching off in that, as you say, naive, peaceful, permanent peace direction, all of that's fallen apart now. And in fact, we're we're going in the other direction, which is even more dangerous. Yeah, I think there's a there's a problem with resilience in democratic systems at the moment. There's been a decline in resilience in our uh, governance and political systems. One, because I think we have a declining confidence in those who lead us. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I think there's been a series of revelations about behaviour of government officials in many different countries, particularly during COVID, that has impacted on confidence in government mm -hmm. and the provision of government services. So, you know, we need to address our own internal issues if we are to engage well, internationally, but you can't do one or the other. They're two sides of the same coin. And you certainly, the United States, if you look at the 20th century in particular, it was always at its most prosperous and its most secure when uh, its systems at home and its international engagement were at their strongest. So, you know, this, this withdrawing from the world 
ideology won't actually work for the United States. It's going to be less prosperous and less secure if it does that. Much to the chagrin of those who would argue otherwise, that it will be stronger by being more isolationist. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, well, when your outlook is, is one metre, you can have that view, but you need to take a longer view, don't you? Well, you know, let, let me let me end with this. Uh, one of the arguments I've, I've been hearing quite a lot from certainly the 1990s, early aughts, is that there is a special relationship, not just between the United States and the United Kingdom, but among the the so-called Anglosphere, countries that share this law and liberty tradition. I mean, you're an Australian general. In, in Australia, it seems to me, and I'm not au fait with the political landscape there, but has been one of America's strongest, most stalwart allies. And this cuts across party lines in a way that perhaps it doesn't in other European countries. Do you see a place for, I mean, forget about, you know, AUKUS and things like that. I'm talking about something more strategic and long-term. Do you see a place for this, a kind of new relationship or alliance that kind of almost doesn't supersede NATO, but can complement NATO amongst the Five Eyes countries that transcends just signals intelligence. I mean, it can have a military, and I suppose you can't really bolster more intelligence sharing mechanisms in Five Eyes, but you know what I mean? Like that there is something that's of permanent value there where our relationships, our partnerships with other countries, it's it's a bit touch and go. Yeah, no, I think the permanent value is our shared values. I yeah. mean, I think that's the real core of the relationship. It's its not about um, ethnicity or, or language or even signals, intelligence and, and technical matters. It's about we have a set of common values. I mean, us, the Canadians, the Brits, the Kiwis, the Americans and others. I mean, you know, you can you can throw the Japanese in there as well. We, we might have fought mm-hmm. them 70 years ago, but boy, we've got a lot in common now. I mean, yep. we have a lot of shared interests and values um, and they've been excellent international citizens since 1945, to be quite frank. So, you know, there's there are other countries out there beyond the traditional five eyes, I think, share our values, share our concerns about the future of democracy and international security. And we shouldn't be replacing uh, NATO or anything like that, but we can certainly complement them with other multinational groupings, coalitions, partnerships and alliances. And I mean, you know, perhaps at the end of this uh, this campaign or this conflict, Ukraine will count as one of those countries, given its your fast breakneck Europeanization. I mean, I, I go to Kiev and I, I find that I feel as though I'm in the heart of the Western world, you know, a struggling democracy, you know. There's certainly an orientation that way from uh, Kiev and, and many Ukrainians, whether it's the whole country or not, I'm not sure, but certainly from Western Ukraine uh, and after this, probably from Eastern Ukraine, given their experience with the Russians so far. But, you know, Ukraine's going to need a lot of economic assistance in the wake of this war. And it's something I think people will be paying more and more attention to. I think just to keep the government running is about $9 billion a month. They're seeing their GDP contract there's half a trillion to a trillion dollars of reconstruction that's going to be needed. So at some point, whilst we're focused on military assistance, long-term economic assistance, a new Marshall Plan is going to be required for Ukraine because they need it, but it'll also be in our interest to have a prosperous Ukraine in Eastern Europe. And one that is in feels a moral obligation or, or indebtedness, if you like, to the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and other countries, the Baltic states, Poland, that have essentially helped it survive. 
Well, listen, I, I've run out of, of queries here, um, but uh, you mentioned a new book that's coming out, uh, which is essentially all about the, the threat of China. I know you're, we can follow you on Twitter. Uh, you Please drop your handle because I, I forget. And then what, where do you normally publish so that my listeners can follow? Um, so my, ne- my next book will be from Casamate. It'll be a book at this point called White Sum War. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually a, a fictional account of a war over Taiwan in the very near future. Oh, okay. uh, and that should be released early next year. Let me, I just want to interrupt you. Um, so I mentioned at the start of the program, we're, we're taking a pause, operational pause out of our own at Foreign Office, not to do video until I have a professional video editor. But if anyone could see the background of General Ryan's Zoom call, it is the Star Wars Rebel Command Center from I don't even know what installment in the franchise. And we just before the show got started, we were talking, uh, he is a, a real admirer of the, I guess, hybridization of science fiction and military affairs. So I didn't know you're writing essentially a, a novel novel or a fictional account of a hypothetical conflict. But can we expect to see Death Star explosion tactics brought to bear in some of your uh, your creative endeavors here? Or It's a little more near future than oh. that. So uh, it will feature some of the newer kinds of institutions, uh, such as Space Command and Marine Littoral Regiments and a lot of human-machine teaming with robotics on the ground. But uh, I won't give any more away than that. But uh, if you've ever read Killer Angels, that's the kind of style that I'm going for, noting that The Killer Angels is a magnificent book that won a Pulitzer. I don't think I could ever aspire to that kind of greatness. Okay. And that'll be out um, in the fall? Early 2023. 2023. Well, listen, uh, I know you've told me I can call you Mick, um, so I will. Yeah. Uh, Mick, it's, it's been a, an honor and, and a pleasure. And uh, as I said earlier, you're one of a handful of people who I think has just been spot on from the very beginning and also insightful in a way the, the Insta experts of social media cannot be. So I, I encourage all listeners of the show to follow Mick's work on Twitter and his analysis, which gets published uh, where again? I mean, I know in the Australian and, and some other outlets, yeah. City Morning Herald, uh, the Australian, uh, sorry, the um, ABC News, Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and I've just published a piece in Engelsberg Ideas as well. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks so much, Mick. And we will absolutely have you back um, when this operational pause is over and we, we see the next phase of the, the war. <laughs> I, look, I look forward to it, Michael. Thanks for having me. Yeah, anytime. Uh, you've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss. My guest uh, this week has been uh, Major General Mick Ryan, of the, formerly of the Australian military and a author and essayist and analyst on the war in Ukraine. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.